Welcome to The Snug, the Irish and France chat show. My name is Porrick Maguire. My guest today is an archaeologist, historian, scholar of James Joyce, beekeeper and diplomat from Dublin. Having represented Ireland in many key posts around the world, he was appointed Secretary General of the Department of Foreign Affairs in 2014 and in 2021 he became Ambassador of Ireland in France. His Excellency, Mr Niall Burgess. Niall, you're very welcome to the snug. Thank you, Porrick. It's a pleasure to be with you. You make me sound very complicated with that introduction. Niall, your specialities are archaeology and medieval history. How did that take you into diplomacy? Uh, because I couldn't get a job as an archaeologist or a medieval historian. It's very simple. I mean, I, I remember as a child, I was always fascinated by castles and ring forts and ruins. And I still am. I still absolutely love it. Um, but when I was given the chance to go to college and given the chance to study archaeology, I decided to study what I really loved. Um, and I've never looked back. I've never regretted it. I met my wife on a, a protest march uh, to try to save Wood Quay. Um, was involved in the Friends of Medieval Dublin and the protest very, very actively at the time. Uh, but there aren't many archaeologists employed and there aren't many options open for them in Ireland. And uh, I took a long, long, long route into diplomacy. And the archaeology that you studied, did you go on many digs in real archaeological sites? I did. I mean, in a way, the way I studied archaeology was also the way I came into the Department of Foreign Affairs because because the medieval excavation in Wood Quay was underway, until then, archaeology in Ireland was very much about the Celts and it was about prehistory and it was about the Stone Age. And then the discovery of this incredibly rich Viking settlement where wood was preserved, I mean, so much leather was preserved, that opened up the whole, whole field of medieval archaeology that wasn't developed in Ireland at the time. And because I had got interested in that, I went to Germany to study um, medieval settlement archaeology. And in order to do that, I had to learn German. So I found myself fluent in one foreign language when I came back. Um, and I did a lot of things before I before I joined the Department of Foreign Affairs. I, I worked on excavations. I worked for the Pigs and Bacon Commission. I worked for Dublin Corporation and for Dublin Libraries. But somebody said to me one day, you know, you speak a foreign language. Maybe you should think about joining the Department of Foreign Affairs. And I did. And I, I didn't get in the first time I tried. Tried it a second time and came in. And I have never looked back. There hasn't been a day in my career when I didn't want to go to work. There have been days when I regretted I did go to work, but there was never a day when I didn't want to go and do the job. And how have you been able to keep your passion for medieval history alive during your professional career? Well, look, that's just something that stays with you. If you love something, if you love movies, if you love music, if you love reading, it'll always stay with you. And it provides a kind of a kind of an alternative life, kind of a, a, a more private life to your to your career. Um, and I've always kept in touch with archaeology. I read about it and the career has brought me all over the world. So I've had every opportunity to visit sites and to sustain my interests that way. And medieval history specifically, is there a particular period within the medieval era that you would consider your 
strong point. No, right now I'm a I'm a I'm I'm omnivorous. I will consume anything in relation to history. Right now I'm reading a book on the history of the Burgundians uh, because I've landed in France and when you land somewhere like this it excites your curiosity makes you realize how much you don't know so i mean i i tend to read to fill gaps in 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 my knowledge rather than to go deeper about issues that i already know and here you are an irishman in france was that the inspiration for your first choice of music the reason i chose uh, the green fields of france i mean partly it has to do with the fact that I, I, I think Finbar Fury's voice is just absolutely unforgettable. It is one of the great voices, full stop. Uh, and he happens to be a great Irish singer. The reason I, I chose that particular piece was that two weeks ago, I was uh, at the Somme for the commemoration of the first day of the Battle of the Somme. And I always find those ceremonies very, very moving. And I'm always struck by just how many thousands of Irish men died in France during the First World War. And in the way that the British memorialized their dead with great cemeteries and the French memorialized their dead with memorials in, in churches and in small towns all over France, we tend to memorialize them in song. And this, I think, is one of the great songs of the First World War. A song written, as we know, by an Australian. Yes, indeed. But the name, of course, William McBride, suggests that he was talking about uh, one of the Irish soldiers who, who fought and died for king and country. Yes, indeed. And I think that's also a part of the its universality, this song, because we tend to remember the war in Ireland in two different ways. If you are from Belfast, you will think of the first day of the Somme when you will think, you'll think of the Ulster Division. If you're from Leinster or Munster, you will think of different battles. And yet there's something quite universal about this particular choice uh, of theme and narrative. Let's listen to The Furies and Davy Arthur. Well, how do you do, young Willie McBride? Do you mind if I sit here down by your graveside And rest for a while need the warm summer sun I've been walking all day and I'm nearly done I see by your gravestone you are only nineteen when you join the Great Fallen in 1916 I hope you died well and I hope you died clean Our young Willie McBride was it slow and obscene Did he beat the drum slowly, did he play the fife slowly, did they sound the death march as they lowered you down And did the band play the last post and chorus Did the pipes play the flowers of the forest Did you leave a wife or a sweetheart behind In some faithful heart is your memory enshrined? Although you died back 
1916 In that fateful heart Are you forever lighting? Or are you a stranger Without even a name And close them forever Behind the glass frame In an old photograph Torn, battered and stained And faded to yellow In the brown leather frame Did he beat the drum slowly? Did he play the fine flowly? Did I sound the death march As they lowered you down? Did the band play the last post and chorus? And did the pipes play the flowers of the forest? The sun, now it shines on the green fields of France. There's a warm summer breeze that makes the red poppies dance. And look how the sun shines from under the clouds There's no gas, no bad wire There's no gun firing now But here in this graveyard It's still no man's land The countless white crosses Stand mute in the sand To man's blind indifference to his fellow man To a whole generation That were butchered and damned Did he beat the drums slowly? Did he play the five slowly? Did they sound the death march As he lowered you down? And did the band play the last post and chorus? Did the pipes Play the flowers of the fall I am willing, my bride I can't help wonder why Do those that lie here Know why did they die And did they believe When they answered the call Did they really believe that this war would end war Well, the sorrow, the suffering The glory, the pain The killing and dying Were all done in vain For young Willie McBride It all happened again And again and again and again and again did they beat the drum slowly? Did they play the fine slowly? Did they sound the death march as they lowered you down? Did the band play the last post and chorus? Did the pipes play the flowers of the forest? Did they beat? The drums slowly did play The fine slowly did they sound The death march as it lowered you down Did the band play the last post in chorus And did the pipes play the flowers 
So, Niall, medieval history and the Irish who were involved in saving civilization in Europe, Columbanus, for example. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I, I, I was in the Sena in Paris this afternoon and I was talking about relations between Ireland and France. And I think sometimes when we think of Ireland and France, we might think of the wild geese or we might think of the revolutionary movements, but actually the connection between Ireland and France goes deep into prehistory. And the French embassy in Dublin, if you pass in front of it nowadays, you'll see they have a sign in front saying, France, your closest EU neighbor. But in fact, for as long as these two countries have existed, we've been closely connected. And I think the, the connection during the early Christian period is really interesting because that was a period when the Irish brought something to continental Europe that had been lost. I was in Saint Malo last week, and that is where Columbanus landed, and that was where he began his European journey. And he's left a really deep, deep legacy in Europe, and those, those monks have left a deep legacy. No matter where you go, if you go to Würzburg in Germany, you'll learn about St. Killian. In France, you'll learn about Saint Fiac. And Robert Schumann, when he was talking about the European ideal in the very early days of the European Union, who did he speak about? He spoke about St. Columbanus and he spoke about a community of values as the basis for what the European Union is now. And I think we should be immensely proud of that. And in a period a bit later, we had the phenomenon of the Irish colleges throughout Europe, the seminaries that were established to train Catholic priests when maybe back in Ireland it was not so easy to do such a thing. One of the great Irish seminaries was established in Paris, which is now the Irish College and which houses the Centre Culturel Yolande. You know, even if you think about just before that period when the Irish colleges were really, really began their, their great flowering, which was the start of the 1700s, sometimes I think about the last decades of the 17th century, the 1600s. There was this incredible exchange of people between Ireland and France because you had tens of thousands of Irish men and women who left Ireland. That was the great exodus of the wild geese in the, late 17th, in the late 17th century. At the same time, you had thousands of French Huguenots crossing into the other direction, each looking for refuge in the other's countries. And it was that exodus that really put, I think, energy into the Irish college network across Europe. And there were so many of them, but actually the, the the finest among them today, and probably the finest for most of the history of the Irish colleges, was the Irish College here in Paris. And it's, it's so wonderful that it has been developed as the centre that it is at the moment, as a community centre. I think sometimes that we don't fully appreciate how important these Irish colleges were, because to a certain extent in the, in the late 1600s, the intellectual capital of Gaelic Ireland moved out of the country into the Irish colleges in Europe. And so much of our collective memory as an Irish speaking country was preserved in the Irish colleges, the annals of the Four Masters, the work that Michal O'Clery and others took on 
across the Irish College network. The manuscripts that were brought out here and preserved, the works of compilation that were preserved, our memory was retained and protected for us to a large extent through the work of those colleges. And the record of Irish culture from those days, the Celtic Irish culture, is preserved in manuscripts and in music. Well, yes, except that the music is much more difficult to 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 come to grips with because so little early Irish music was set down and was notated. Um, when we lived in Brussels um, about 20 years ago, we, we decided that we needed to have a base in Ireland where our children could grow up with a sense of a very strong Irish identity. And we began increasingly to go to Valencia Island. And every evening in Valencia Island, I would look out at Skellig Michael. And I was always preoccupied with what it was like to live in that world, that early Christian world. And to some extent, because we, our language, we were cut off from our language at a certain point in our history, I think it's very difficult for us to imagine what that world was like in a Gaelic speaking world. And I think music is a very way, interesting way into that. That might inspire your second choice in music. Well, the second choice in music is a, a piece of music from um, a, a, an album that was compiled by Cambridge College, the choir in Cambridge College. And it was an attempt to recreate the sound world of the early Christian world in Ireland, the Celtic church. And as I said, very, very little was written down and notated. But I think this is an extraordinary piece of, of music because it makes a really good attempt at creating what the church music in Ireland during that early period was actually like. And this is a piece from that album, Lauda Anime Mea Dominum. As you've already pointed out, Niall, France is Ireland's nearest EU neighbour and historically we have uh, very strong links. 
those links are developing still and increasing, especially in the post-Brexit era. What's your ambition for the connections between Ireland and France? Well, I think an awful lot of the connections between Ireland and France are, are underway. They're happening through force of nature. Uh, and I don't think the degree to which we're connected and the degree of affection between Ireland and France is fully appreciated. I think for many Irish people, when they think of our big international relationships, they think of the US and the transatlantic relationship. They think of Britain, um, despite all the complications of Brexit, partly because emigration has been so strong and historic to those areas. And yet in so many ways, the relationship between Ireland and France is equal in scale and it's equal in importance. And there are so many ways of describing that. This summer, a half a million Irish people will come to France and they will holiday here. A half a million French people will come to Ireland. When you think of our population, that's an extraordinary connection. And Irish people come here because they have an affinity and a connection with this country. Um, French is by far the most taught language in Irish schools. After Irish and English, the language we are most likely to be able to speak is French. And what you can see now in the aftermath of Brexit is a momentum in the connections between Ireland and France that's actually happening at a dizzying pace. I mean, let me give you an example. Two years ago, when we were preparing for Brexit, there were 12 weekly maritime connections between Ireland and France. This week, there will be 40 sailings from Ireland to France. It has more than tripled. Three times, yeah. In a few months' time, we are likely to sign the contract for an electricity interconnector that connects us directly to the European grid and that will allow us to, uh, to export renewable energy from Ireland to France. There are so many dimensions to this. If I had one objective, it would be to tell the story of this relationship as it is and to spot the opportunities for accelerating it, because I think it's incredibly important for us and incredibly good for us. I think we both take an awful lot, the French and the Irish, from what, this What are, apart from tourism being a, a two-way export, what are the big export items from Ireland and from France to Ireland? Well, I mean, one of the biggest export items from Ireland to France is food. Um, you know, our, our exports of beef, our exports of dairy product produce, our exports of lamb, our exports of shellfish, driven by sheer quality. And the French appreciate quality. They think a lot about their food, make this one of our most important markets in Europe. And if you have an export that's based on something as as personal and, and cultural as food, then that matters, I think, disproportionately. We're involved now in a lot of um, a, a lot of renewable exports as well to France. I mean, for example, the cement that's been used in the Olympic Village and that's been used in the in the infrastructure project around Paris leading up to the Olympics is made by an Irish company. It's cement that has a very, very low carbon footprint. So there's a lot of creativity in the relationship as well. Conversely, it was a French company that designed uh, and drove 
and is driving a lot of the infrastructure projects around Dublin as well, the DART, uh, for example. Uh, so I think there's, I think it's not just the, the scale of the business that we do with each other, it's the kind of business that we do matters as well. I have to say I wouldn't have thought of cement as being a big export from Ireland. There you are. <laughs> now I know better. And the exports the other direction, from France to Ireland. From, Fran from France to Ireland, a lot of that is around technology. You know, so, as I mentioned, uh, on, on infrastructure, we all know that the public transport infrastructure in France is some of the best in the world, uh, around rail and around urban transport. We're taking a lot from France as we try to accelerate our own infrastructure in Ireland as well. So that's a good example. There's another very well-known product that uh, is originated in France, France by an Irish family, Hennessy Cognac. And it's not just the Hennessys who, who, were the, who were wild geese, actually the number of Irish people who are involved in the wine industry now, and that includes small small producers, um, uh, is quite surprising. There's some band of reprobates called Lynch, I think, have a so I hear a chateau in Bordeaux somewhere. Yeah, but the Hennessy, it's funny, uh, and the Bartons a, as well. Indeed, a lot of French people don't know that Hennessy is an Irish name, and they don't know it's an Irish family that founded the Hennessy. I didn't know that distillery. They don't know that. Yeah. So in modern time, again, we the the trade links are growing uh, at a rapid rate. Saying cultural links too, I think, are expanding. We have the previously mentioned the uh, Irish College in Paris is now houses now the Irish Cultural Centre in Paris, which highlights not only Irish culture but also French and links between them. What's your experience with the Irish College and the Irish Cultural Centre? Well, I think what's really important about the Irish Cultural Centre is that it allows Irish artists to come and take time here in France. And by taking time here in France, they build connections and they build collaborations with French artists as well. And when you put the two together, when you see the product of some of those collaborations, I think you end up with something really special. Uh, and I think that's what's unique about the Irish Cultural Centre here, is that it provides a space for Irish artists to come reflect on their work, but to create new work. And almost by definition, the work that they're creating reflects the relationship between Ireland and France. The Irish community in France, I think, is becoming more uh, united and more connected. We have our own association, Irish in France. We have the uh, GAA has a, a branch in France. There's other Irish uh, cultural and sporting bodies, most of them centered in Paris. How do you suggest we could expand that to include our friends in the regions of France? Well, look, I think there are some regions in France that actually have a disproportionate connection with Ireland. Brittany is the one that comes immediately to mind. The number of teams playing GAA, playing Gaelic football in Brittany is absolutely enormous. Um, actually, when you look at the GAA in France, it's actually scattered right across the country. By the way, that's not a story that's well known in Ireland. You know, the fact that you can, you can put together 30 or 40 teams from across France for a tournament here in France, where most of the players are actually French speakers. And that tells you something about the complexity of our community here, how rich and how mixed it is. Um, we're opening a new consulate in Lyon. That'll be our first professional diplomatic office in France outside Paris in the hundred years that we've been represented here. We're opening an honorary consulate in Brittany this year. 
Um, so I think we do need to think about how we tell the story about the Irish across France. Yes, Paris is a very strong story, but actually the story is just as big if you look at it enlarged across the country. Mm-hmm. Now, it's been very interesting chatting with you. Um, our time is nearly up. Tell us about your final choice of music. Well, my final choice is completely uh, off the screen. Uh, and I think it, this goes back to the fact that I've spent a lot of my career in the United States. I've served in Chicago and I've served in New York. Uh, and I have a great fondness for the Irish connection with the US as well. And you told me that I needed to choose Irish songs, but actually I really wanted to finish this with a piece of country and Western music. And the excuse I'm giving for choosing this is that the Irish influence on country and Western music has so has been so strong that I think we can count it as our own. And I think one of the things we do very well as a people is tell stories. Uh, and this is a song by Cheryl Crow and Willie Nelson about two people who meet in a bar late at night. And it's a song that I love and I thought it would be appropriate to end this. No, it's been a pleasure sharing a few minutes with you and hearing your story and uh, pleasure hearing your selection of music and with our final song by Willie Nelson and Cheryl Crow it's time to say goodbye so take care Niall and thank you very much for being with us thank you Paul it's been a pleasure
listening to this episode of The Snug by Irish in France. My name is Porrick McGuire and our producer is Paul Lynch. Paul Lynch.